It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to welcome our first guest to the show, David Webster is uh, teaches international and Asian history topics with a focus on 20th century, and he's a professor uh, of history at Bishop's University. He previously held positions at the universities of Toronto and San Francisco and Regina. Uh, he has a book, A Fire and the Full Moon, Canada and Indonesia in a Decolonizing World, and examines Canada's and Indonesia relations from 1945 to 1999 at both government and civil society levels. And he's the editor of Flowers in the Wall, uh, Truth and Reconciliation in uh, Timor-Leste and uh, Indonesia and Melanesia. Um, And uh, David, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for asking me to be on. I see that you also did some examinations of Truth and Reconciliation. How does that have uh, a bearing on uh, what we see in Canada with, with what is happening in that regard? Truth and reconciliation has become a bit of a buzzword in Canada. Mm. Um, It's an international phenomenon that started in Latin America and Africa, where society is healing after conflict or after uh, authoritarian rule tried to tackle with the legacies of the past in order to build a uh, more inclusive future. Mm -hmm. And Canada, in some ways, picked up on that idea, but... Canada has, perhaps in its truth and reconciliation process, not, or not yet, I hope, uh, reached the uh, stage of actually setting straight the wrongs of the past. Mm. So there may be lessons from overseas that Canada could learn in this case. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm glad. I know we're not focusing on that today, but I wanted to bring that up because it, it sounds like you've had a fascinating uh, look at at uh, not only uh, Canada's role in what we're going to be talking about today, but also in other issues. And, and it would be perhaps great to have you back on the show to talk about uh, Canada and uh, its its truth and reconciliation approach and what's happening in, uh, within the country with the Indigenous people. However... Uh, let's move on because what we really want to talk about is um, an article that you wrote uh, and authored on a UN uh, Security Council, actually, um, and and about Canada losing its seat uh, to um, uh, to that uh, UN Security Council. Um, so I guess my first my first question, if you don't mind. Um, how Canada had a seat on the United Nations Security Council. How how did Canada lose its seat, and why? Well, Canada has a, Canada has a five and three record on Security Council elections, meaning it's been elected to the Security Council five times and been defeated three times. Mm. Um, and this past uh, month was one of the three defeats and the second second defeat in a row. The Security Council has five permanent members, uh, United States and the Soviet Union and Britain and France and China. And then it has a number of temporary members who are elected for two-year terms. And Canada has traditionally tried to be on the Security Council about once every 10 years and usually has been successful in being elected. But in 2010 under Stephen Harper and again in 2020 under Justin Trudeau, 
the United Nations uh, General Assembly, which is one country, one vote, did not choose Canada to be on the Security Council. This campaign didn't convince them, but also in large part, and that's the argument I'm making in the article you referenced, is that Canada's reputation overseas is not the reputation that Canadians think they have. <laughs> it's not seen overseas universally as a peacekeeping country or in a generous aid donor or a mediator or a voice for peace and human rights and global justice. Largely, Canada is seen overseas as a uh, voice for American foreign relations goals mm. and for uh, and largely inactive on the issues that matter to most of the people of the world. So the votes weren't there to see Canada elected to the Security Council. Was that always the case? Were we always viewed that way? Canada used to have a quite pretty good reputation. Um, and it goes back to uh, the famous example of Lester Pearson being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in uh, 1957 for his work in the creation of the first major United Nations peacekeeping mission uh, between uh, Israel and Egypt. So Canada was seen as making a uh, major contribution back then. Mm. Under uh, Pierre Trudeau, when he was Prime Minister, Canada gave twice as much in percentage terms measured as a percentage of the size of the Canadian economy as it does under Justin Trudeau. Canada used to make substantial contributions to United Nations peacekeeping missions. This is, after all, how, why Lester Pearson won a Nobel Peace Prize and took pride in being part of every UN peacekeeping mission up until the 1980s. Now Canada has about 50 peacekeepers overseas, so it's not a major peacekeeping contributor around the world any longer. The rhetoric of Canadian foreign policy is pretty good, but the reality is far short of the words. What changed in the 1980s uh, for Canada to start backing off? Well, this is under Brian Mulroney. Um, it was not seen as something that Canada wanted to contribute to in the same scale. But it, l since then, it's largely been neglect. It seems like saying that Canada is a great peacekeeping voice around the world seems to be considered enough. Actually contributing resources to peacekeeping is not being done any longer. Canada is putting more energy into uh, NATO missions, into the troop presence in Afghanistan that went on for many years, into other sorts of international contributions that are not under a United Nations umbrella. So it's just words not measuring up to actions once again. What changed in the 80s? Uh, the world changed, and the world's been changing since, and Canada has been coasting on a reputation that mm it no longer has overseas. Yeah, and it was really interesting to hear you say, um, and I was going to ask you about that, that uh, about our internal view of, of what our external uh, presence or, or um, uh, view is. And I'm glad you pointed that out to us, that we've been coasting on that, as you say, and uh, things have changed externally in, in terms of how Canada is, is viewed uh, around, the, around the, the planet, uh, partly because of, as you point out, some of the things that Canada is or not, is not involved with. What are the benefits of having a seat uh, on the United Nations Security Council, though? Why is it important to be there? It's seen as a mark of prestige, and I think that's probably why Canada was seeking the seat in this case. Um, it was personally identified very strongly with the Prime Minister's uh, own decision to seek the, uh, the seat. 
Hmm. Any country can always make a contribution internationally. Right. W- w- regardless of whether it's on the Security Council. The Security Council membership gives you access um, and uh, magnifies your voice when you're trying to achieve something. So let's talk about the last time Canada was on the Security Council. So 1999 and 2000. Uh, Jean Chrétien was the Prime Minister. Lloyd Axworthy was Foreign Minister at the time. And Canada on the Security Council had a clear agenda on what it wanted to accomplish. And this was largely rotating around Axworthy's idea of what he called human security. So he wanted to push forward um, initiatives that were already underway, largely led by civil society groups, such as banning landmines or creating the International Criminal Court, which was established in the 1990s. He uh, used Canada's seat on the Security Council to help ease the uh, transition of East Timor or Timor-Leste, as it's now known, towards independence. So there was a sense that Canada had a clear idea of what it wanted to accomplish, that it wouldn't be able to change the world by itself, but it wanted to do some useful, effective things. And I think, to an extent, there was some success there. In the two campaigns carried out since then for Security Council seats under Harper and under Justin Trudeau, there's been a sense that Canada wants to be elected because it's Canada. And Canada's awesome, and so the world should vote for Canada to be on the Security Council. This is not as successful. The world needs more Canada. It's not a good campaign uh, (laughs) initiative. If you have something you want to accomplish, then being on the Security Council can help you accomplish. If you just want to be there because you're Canada, and Canada is a bunch of nice guys and Mm. automatically considered to be a good voice in international affairs, then you're not going to find the votes are there in many cases. So... Canada wasn't running against uh, Mexico, for instance, which was elected. Canada was running for one of the two seats that went to the Western Europe and other country uh, group. And those seats were won by Norway and by Ireland, both of which were seen as doing better at what Canada says it's good at. So <laughs> so I'm just wondering what, uh, what, what you think why Trudeau was going after the seat at this time, as well as, aside from the prestige that it would be, you know, that, that Canada would get, what, what, why go after this at this point in time? I think that would be a good question to ask to the Prime Minister. It isn't clear. <laughs> okay. I don't see any reason other than, uh, other than prestige that Canada was going for the seat. Justin Trudeau came into power 2015, He declared, for all those who have been wondering what was wrong with Canada's foreign policy under Stephen Harper, I have news for you. Canada is back. Mm -hmm. Famous, famous saying by Mm -hmm. Trudeau. Mm -hmm. And he quickly identified one of the ways Canada was back would be to uh, take a seat on the Security Council. But it was never clear why Canada wanted a seat on the Security Council. It took uh, it took some time after declaration uh, to come up with a campaign platform, whereas the competing the, the competing countries for Canada had a very clear agenda that they spelled out some years in advance about what they wanted to accomplish as far as as far as i can see the canadian agenda was canada is back which is a slogan rather than a program right my guest is david webster it's a pleasure to have him on we're talking about canada losing its seat on the security council the united nations security council please don't go away because we will be right back here on moment of truth with more right after this Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. 
You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest is David Webster. He is a uh, professor at, of history at Bishop's University, and he previously held positions at the University of Toronto, San Francisco, and Regina. It's a pleasure to have him on. We're talking about uh, Canada losing its seat on the, the, the Security Council, the United Nations Security Council. Uh, we've been discussing reasons why Canada would even want to pursue it at this time. Why did we lose it? Canada's, uh, Canada's perception, both uh, internally how we see ourselves, and how we are seen now externally. Uh, David's pointed out some interesting things in, in an article he wrote and uh, and saying that the world doesn't need any more Canada at this time. And uh, we have some egg on our face at this point in time from losing the seat. Um, David, how do you think that reflects on on what Trudeau was saying about uh, uh, coming back and and, uh, and and what this means moving forward? I think it says we need to separate image from reality. Canada's diplomatic self-image, as I've said, is about being a peacekeeper, being a generous aid donor, being a mediator on the international scene. We need to look at the fact that Canada's contributions on these fronts are paltry in some cases and actually harmful in other cases. And we need to grapple with the gap between Canada's diplomatic self-image and Canada's actual foreign policy actions on the international scene. And sort of come to grips with it honestly and say, what are we actually doing in the world? And it, I mean, it's similar. It will go back to the reconciliation that you mentioned at the beginning, right? Um, the word reconciliation is always held up as a great banner. And the prime minister is constantly saying there's no relationship more important to Canada than its relationship with its, with its indigenous peoples, um, as he would put it. Um, the reality, of course, is far, far different from that. And the talk of a nation-to-nation relationship is not actually being put into practice. The government is still trying to call the shots. Mm-hmm. On the international scene, you can make a similar comparison. Canada talks a very good game. But the reality is not one of democracy promotion, quite the reverse in some cases. The reality is not one of generous aid donning to the world. In fact, Canada's contribution in terms of percentage of its gross national income is far short and growing less um, of the targets set out by the United Nations and by the former Prime Minister Lester Pearson, far, far short of that target. Canada talks about contributing to United Nations peacekeeping, but its contribution is minuscule to that front in terms of troops contributed. So we need to, instead of flag-waving, and talking about how good Canada is and how the world needs more Canada, we need to say, actually, we can't yet talk about Canadian leadership. We need to face up to the realities that Canadians are seeing overseas, for instance, as the home to mining companies that are invading without free prior informed consent the land of Indigenous peoples around the world. We need to grapple with the perception of Canada not being how we see ourselves, but Canada as being another typical pro-American voice in world affairs. And that's not the image Canadians have of themselves, but we need to stop 
fooling ourselves and thinking the world sees us as we see ourselves. You know, from what you're describing and from what I, I'm, I'm learning from this discussion, it, it almost sounds like uh, Trudeau in going after this seat was, was uh, it was almost like a personal thing for him uh, when, when you say Canada is back, uh, that, that he was trying to uh, almost, uh, you know, riding on the, on the name, uh, you know, of Trudeau uh, and, and establishing and saying, uh, bolstering his own, his own international opinion. Uh, and and uh, and front to 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 then bolster his his uh, image within the country as well. If he were to win a seat back on the, the council, there is a famous saying that all foreign policy is actually domestic policy. <laughs> I think you put your finger on it right there. Uh, mm. It would have been nice for the prime minister personally to have a vote of confidence from the world. Mm. And the reason I say egg on his face is that this is very it's a it's a bid that very much is personally identified with Justin Trudeau as an individual. Mm -hmm. So many Canadians got behind the bid. Canadian diplomats worked very hard um, on trying to win the election, but it's Justin Trudeau who was identified with it far mm. more so than Stephen Harper was identified with the bid 10 years ago. Mm. Um, and yet not only did Canada fail for a second time to be elected, but Canada actually lost votes between 2010 and 2020. Mm -hmm. So Justin Trudeau's bid was less successful than Stephen Harper's bid. Canada was eliminated in the first round. Right. Stephen Harper was able to get to a second round uh, by winning a few more votes. So Canada's support internationally is down in right. the past 10 years. The personal support for Justin Trudeau, the brand, brand Justin that has been sold mm. was not bought. Right. <laughs> Uh, now you you pointed out some in interesting points there that you know certain people that were behind this initially actually uh, started to back out as well. Like Canada's campaign lost uh, support. Uh, what happened there? That it's hard to know because we it's a secret ballot, so we don't know which country voted which way. Mm. So we don't know which countries voted for Canada previously that did not do so this time. Right. It's 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 impossible to know which countries those are. However, you can look at. Uh, a whole bunch of individual issues and see where might countries be likely to fall on that. Venezuela, the government is recognized by the United Nations, but Canada recognizes the opposition leader as the rightful president. So Venezuela campaigned against Canada because Canada is trying non-violently, but still trying very actively to topple Venezuela's government. Israel and Palestine, Canada has emerged as one of the world's strongest voices in support of Israel. It's not when Israel's annexing illegally against international law parts of Palestinian territory, when there's attendant major human rights violations with that, then it's not a position that endears Canada to many countries in Asia, the Middle East, Africa, even Latin America. When Canada is behind the uh, toppling of President Evo Morales of uh, Bolivia, who was set to win an election and the election results were derailed and a new right-wing government was put into place. So toppling the first, uh, the first indigenous president of Bolivia, who was establishing a plurinational state uh, in favor of a typical right-wing uh, regime. So Canada's position has been seen as uh, a more polite and yet still effective voice 
in pursuit of American foreign policy goals. Mm. So Justin Trudeau is ironically identified internationally in foreign policy, perhaps with some aspects of the United States foreign policy. So maybe people voted against Donald Trump. Mm. Hmm. Um, some of the other things you point out, as you say, Canada is, is not uh, contributing uh, the, the uh, percentage that was set uh, by, by Pearson uh, at this point in time, falling short that way, uh, falling short in terms of what it's contributing to peacekeepers uh, from, from its previous uh, time. But also it, it has started to, to uh, resell uh, arms to Saudi Arabia. Uh, how, how do you think that has affected this? The sale of arms by Canada to Saudi Arabia is the perfect example of Canadian foreign policy being pretty much the same in its basic fundamentals between Harper and Trudeau. So this is a contract that was negotiated under the Harper government, which was quite happy to sell weapons to uh, large Middle Eastern dictatorship, Saudi Arabia. This is a sale that was then continued, apparently quite happily, under the uh, Trudeau government by three successive foreign ministers and by the prime minister. The prime minister says he wanted to find a way out of it, but he couldn't find a way out of it. So Canada is now Saudi Arabia's number two arms supplier after the United States. Saudi Arabia is our largest arms export market outside the United States. So it's a major sale we're talking about here. Canada announced a feminist foreign policy, as they called it. It hasn't been really spelled out what that would mean. But by arming Saudi Arabia, Canada is in effect giving support to one of the world's most anti-feminist foreign policies. I mean, Saudi Arabia has very, very limited rights for women within the domestic sphere. So it's considered to be quite a misogynist domestic policy. Mm. But it also has uh, been identified with the growth of right-wing conservative Islamic movements, so religious fundamentalism, exported by Saudi Arabia throughout the Islamic world and into Southeast Asia. So Canada is bankrolling in some ways a misogynist foreign policy, even while saying it has a feminist foreign policy. So again, this is the rhetoric gap between nice words and negative actions. Right. Uh, as you pointed out earlier in the conversation, that uh, Canada seemed to be riding on the idea that it has this great peacekeeping uh, 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 view internationally. You've 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 uh, uh, dispelled that. You also, in your article, point out some some real hard facts that show how Canada uh, really, if you look at what was going on uh, with the with the other two countries that won the seats, uh, they are contributing much, much more in, in, in many different ways and have been for some time, it seems, uh, whereas Canada is, is if you just look at the numbers, uh, it doesn't compare with, with either of those two. Um, and um, that alone, uh, I guess, is, is reason enough for Canada not to have, have gotten the seat. But why, why, why do you think Canada would have, uh, you, you know, thought that it could, you know, stand up to to what uh, uh, the two countries, uh, uh, you know, were were presenting uh, for for the desire to win a seat on the Security Council. I think the Canadian diplomatic soft image is a powerful one. Mm. The facts, the numbers, don't always seem to be able to make a dent into how Canadians see themselves, mm. particularly how Canadian government officials see themselves. So. 
development assistance, so foreign aid, to give it the, the standard term. The Partners in Development Commission in 1970, United Nations Commission, headed by Lester Pearson after his retirement as Prime Minister of Canada, said, really, we, th we think that every wealthy country should give 0.7% of its gross national income to helping to uh, bring up the standards of living in less developed countries. So 0.7%, they said. It's not a huge amount, but it's enough to be noticed. Norway gives roughly 1% of its gross national income to development assistance. So it's substantial. It's a world leader in this front, and it's seen as a world leader. And people look at the numbers and they say, yeah, Norway is putting its money where its mouth is. Canada is not putting money where its mouth is. There's a lot of mouth, but not as much money. <laughs> so in absolute terms, Canada is a lot bigger than Norway. Its economy is a lot bigger. So the aid figures in dollar terms look pretty impressive. But when you look at it in percentage terms, mm. compare it to Canada's ability to give, Canada's not near the 0.7% target mm. that was set by a former Canadian prime minister, amongst others. Right. In fact, it's nowhere near it. Um, the highest Canada ever reached is 0.5%. Oh. That happened under Pierre Trudeau and under Brian Mulroney. That's when Canadian aid was at a peak. It is barely half that level now. We're looking at 026 0.27%. So it fell under Harper, but it's also low under Trudeau, which have a lot of talk about, isn't it wonderful how much Canada is spending on foreign aid? Or from some quarters, isn't it terrible how much Canada is spending on foreign aid? But it's actually a tiny fraction. So we're looking at barely more than a quarter of 1% of the size of the Canadian economy being spent on helping alleviate poverty and promote economic development overseas. Canada at the same time is trying to reach a target of spending 2% of its gross national income on defense, as it's called. So on mm. uh, NATO commitments, a great deal more is being spent on the military than is being spent on humanitarianism. So there's the gap between, if you look at the numbers, the reality of how Canada is behaving in the world and the diplomatic self-image. But this diplomatic self-image seems impervious to facts in many cases. Mm. So Canadians continue to say the world needs more Canada. Canadians continue to wave their flag and think that here is a country that's respected internationally. But the numbers don't back it up. Mm. And this is why we say we need, we need to start challenging and questioning our own myths about what our country is. Because we're not always living up to our fine words. We're often not. Right. So Canada loses to uh, Ireland and, and Norway uh, for the, these seats. Um, is this a wake-up call for Canada and the, the government, do you think? Well, yes, it should be a wake-up call. And it's interesting that... Uh, so I, I think one of the reasons that Canada did not see the international support is that Canada uh, lost support amongst... Canadian civil society groups. There were active campaigns by Canadian organizations against Canada's candidacy. Mm -hmm. So that was a factor. Um, should it be a wake-up call? Yes. The Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, which is a new organization formed from uh, groups sort of on the left in Canada, has said, we need a fundamental rethink of Canadian foreign policy. So they're taking their campaign against Canada's Security Council candidacy and turning it into, we need to reorient Canadian foreign policy fundamentally. There's your critique from the left. 
ironically, you're seeing a similar critique from the right. So the McDonald Laurier Institute, which is the equivalent think tank uh, on the conservative side, is saying, we need a Canadian foreign policy review. So I think it should be a wake up call. And I think Canadians are ready to actually start thinking about it and mm. say, wow, the world doesn't see us as we see ourselves. Let's actually reflect on that and think about changing. Mm. Unfortunately, the initial signs are not great. Mm. So um, everybody always has very fine words to say about the outgoing Canadian ambassador to the United Nations, Marc-Andre Blanchard. He's mm. an accomplished diplomat and uh, very effective in many aspects of his file. He's retiring now. He's going to be replaced with uh, Bob Ray as the mm -hmm. Canadian ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, Bob Ray, of course, former Ontario premier, former uh, interim leader of the Liberal Party of Canada, very much close to the liberal foreign policy establishment. And this question was asked to him when he was named uh, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations mm -hmm. uh, designate. And uh, he said, well, no, I think we have the fundamentals right. And he didn't give any signs that a rethink was on the cards. Hmm. And that's unfortunate because I think we need to see this as an opportunity for Canada to uh, hmm. rethink how it behaves in the world, how it relates to other parts of the world. And to think about, can we try to perhaps in actions live up to the words that we give? So it should be a wake up call. I'm not sure if it will be. It's going to need right. continued pressure from civil society groups to get the government to actually rethink. Mm. David, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Fascinating topic, and uh, I look forward to having uh, you back on the show, perhaps, and, and talking about some of this other, uh, these other areas that you, uh, you cover and look at uh, with, with your work as a professor of history at Bishop's uh, University. Uh, and uh, we appreciate your time today. Well, thanks very much for asking me to come on the show. Our pleasure. We look forward, as I say, to having you back on. That's David Webster. As I mentioned, he is a, a professor of history at Bishop's University in Quebec, and uh, it's been a pleasure to have him on the show. That is this part of the show, but please don't go away, because we will be right back here on Moment of Truth with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and .ca, and then um, you can listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the show, Amis Akbari. Professor of Early Childhood, a School of Early Childhood at George Brown College, and Associate Professor of Applied Psychology and Human Development at the University of Toronto. Uh, she is here to uh, talk to us about coronavirus, uh, surprise, surprise, uh, and school closures, and how that could widen the inequities for young students. Amis, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Now, um, you know, when... Uh, I read the article uh, and also think about uh, coronavirus. There is, of course, a lot of talk, um, both uh, within, uh, you know, uh, social circles as well as uh, governments. We hear a lot about what's going on. What can we expect when school returns back in September? The people are looking at that. But, of course, as we all know, when when uh, coronavirus th threw this, this at us, uh, everyone was, was struggling. Everyone was, uh, uh, you know, just trying to figure out how to continue to have some normalcy in terms of getting especially kids um, 
to continue their education. There were uh, issues that came up just in terms of some very basics that we saw. For instance, uh, a lot of a lot of school, a lot of schools, teachers, professors uh, had not, uh, you know, they weren't used to teaching online. They didn't have the tools. They didn't know how to use uh, some of those those things uh, from a technological perspective. So there was a learning curve, a fast learning curve for them. Um, then, of course, there is the possibility of, well, what if not all the students have access to either a computer or internet? Uh, how does that affect things? So there was a lot of things, just very basic items uh, that, that were thrown at everyone trying to uh, establish and get uh, kids back on track in terms of, of school. We've been into this, I guess, three months now. Uh, uh, you know, school had been uh, impacted uh, greatly. Um, and as uh, we heard, I know some of the people I work with um, uh, have kids of my own. Uh, one graduated uh, from, from a, a university, the other uh, in grade nine. And so I saw the direct effect of that. Uh, at least my, my kids were a little older and able to handle a lot of what they were doing uh, on their own. Uh, but younger kids, uh, some of the people I work with have younger children, and they were struggling with trying to do the home learning uh, as well as work and all of those things. So I, I, we heard about all those struggles, and, uh, and and there was those kind of things that we saw. And they're the kind of things that, that, that some of the things that you are pointing out with, with the article that you, you uh, address this with. But there are many more inequities for young students uh, in, in terms of uh, how this coronavirus will affect them and has affected them as we move forward even. Yes, uh, exactly. And, and, you know, what we've really seen is that many families are, are really enduring a crushing burden right now with destroyed careers, financial challenges, mm. mental health challenges, uh, maybe family conflict and, and family uh, uh, violence that often schools offered a respite for. Um, and I think what is really important here is that uh, this virus has uh, also uncovered a myriad of inequities that we have within our education systems. And I think that's very important uh, to address um, from systemic racism to the access to resources that are necessary for optimal uh, learning. You know, just at the at the basic level of that, when we first uh, went into lockdown, we realized about technology access and mm. school boards shuffled to try to get access to uh, computers and devices for children. And uh, just the Toronto District School Board fell short by thousands. Um, they weren't able to uh, to distribute. Um, I think it's the last ten thousand, if I'm not if I'm not wrong. And these are these are still pretty basic um, aspects of what we need, uh, what children need. Uh, for optimal learning, a quiet place to, to be able to, uh, to study. Um, often uh, parents that were essential workers were not even home to be able to support their learning and children were left with older siblings if, if available. Um, or those that worked from home had to balance uh, childcare and education uh, with their own job demands. And we also saw the gendered impact of, of this virus that most of the um, burden fell on on women. Uh, they were more likely to cut back their hours and lo lose income uh, as they tried to balance childcare and education at home. So this is really, I, I think for me, very importantly, has really uncovered already existing inequities within our you know, systems of education. 
Yeah, you, you point out in the article that uh, the, the virus, it, it sort of accents uh, these things for us, which is true, and it's done that in other ways as, as well. Puts a lot of pressure on everyone, uh, and, and, and as, as time goes on, more stress uh, on everyone as well, uh, in, including children. I guess one of the things, and, and this is not the first time, of course, we, we've heard about uh, education and that it's important, of course, for kids to get back into this this uh, this kind of a formalized and and and, and structured in uh, learning environment, so they can benefit from that. But the one thing that I that I was wondering about, not only from from what I read from your article, but also from other people that I've heard talking about this, is can you give a sense? Uh, first of all, what what are the the real important ages we're talking about here? That's one. But the second thing is. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to. Uh, I. Th- I think it, perhaps an adult doesn't. It doesn't seem. It's only been a few months, you know. Uh, but for a child, a few months is is is, is a different uh, time span. They, they're like sponges. They learn very quickly. So it, there's a there's a, a, a developmental aspect of this that I guess we're talking about as well for kids, to to for them to be affected from that from that side of it in terms of their their ability to uh, to to move uh, and 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 learn things going forward and how that will affect them uh, uh, in in the long run absolutely and so what when i talk about the you know the early years and early developmental period we're we're really talking about you know 0 to uh, 6 and 7 years old we know that you know the brain grows at an astronomical rate at this time this is when children obtain and learn the skills um, that are necessary foundations for lifelong success, lifelong learning. And so this uh, disruption for for this aged group is, is happening precisely at a time where children are gaining their most um, uh, where developmental gains really matter the most. Uh, so if we don't um, address this, if we don't prepare for the gaps that this is creating, both uh, for children and their growth, but also um, inequity gaps, uh, then we're going to see shifts in developmental trajectories and we're going to see really long-term impacts of this of this disruption into well into into the future and so how we respond to this you know incalculable uh, disruption is really going to determine its outcome so can we you know there's a lot for us to to of course talk about I'm just trying to get a sense though how how much time it takes uh, for it to uh, if you have a, 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 a sense of how long it might take for a, a child to get affected, you know, uh, is is three months uh, a long time for you know? Can that affect a child uh, permanently in terms of of, of their their development uh, and their ability to to either focus or learn or or develop skills uh, that are important? Uh, absolutely, and and here is where the inequity issue really comes at the forefront of the discussion. Uh, families that are privileged, that have stable homes, um, will be able to to circumvent this and navigate through all of these closures and disruptions. They they will be able to find alternative um, learning methods, and they'll they will be their children will um, not really you know be nudged off any kind of developmental trajectory, but. Uh, for those that are, you know, living in poverty, uh, for those uh, homes that are already marred with violence, uh, for uh, children with special needs, um, and those that really um, 
uh, school was really a, a respite for uh, for a difficult home environment, they're going to fall further behind. And we're going to see these cumulative effects of inequities. And so this is particularly concerning. So is three months a long time uh, for privileged families that have the resources? Maybe not. But for uh, those that are already in vulnerable communities, absolutely. Mm. Uh, you know, um, it it sounds like COVID, uh, aside from from accenting these these inequities, it, it's also what I'm getting a sense of is from what you're saying is that it it's also widening that gap between the haves and the haves nots. Absolutely, and it absolutely is. And if we don't prepare on, upon return to school, uh, if we don't prepare for that, then we are going to continue to widen that inequity. Uh, educators need to be prepared. They need to um, have professional learning around how to support children. Uh, we, we don't know what children have endured in the last three months. Mm. And so we need to prepare for their, to support their social emotional development, their mental health and the mental health of their families. And so with that comes a need for profession, investment in professional learning uh, so that we are ready uh, to, to address these last three months, if not more. I mean, there's a second wave and we go into lockdown again, then this is, you know, we're, we're start, we're going to be starting the cycle again. So these are all, you know, important, a uh, couple of important issues. What are we doing during lockdown is an important issue. Um, educators are in a unique position that uh, where they have daily contact with isolated families. Uh, so um, where should the focus be? It should be focused on the mental health of, of children, their social emotional development, um, providing access to resources, um, referral to services. Uh, we can catch up on learning if we have a foundation of, of, of healthy well-being and mental health. So we need to focus on that first and then address uh, potential uh, you know, learning gaps that will arise from these last three months. As that's that's number one. What are we doing while we're in this situation, while schools are closed? And the second issue is what are we doing when we come back and how are we preparing um, uh, the services, the school boards, school authorities in order to address uh, the last three months, both in mental health and, and learning uh, that needs potentially needs to be caught up. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. Just to type in the coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It's our pleasure to have uh, uh, Emisek Bari with us here uh, in uh, on the show. Uh, she's a professor of early childhood and a school of early childhood at George Brown College and associate professor of applied psychology and hum- human development at the University of Toronto. We're talking about coronavirus uh, and the school closures and how it is uh, widening the inequities for young students. And, um, Anissa, I'm just wondering, are, are, are we, or are you concerned, or are you feeling better about looking to the future in terms of school in September for students, and, and is, do you see signs of uh, potentially uh, getting things uh, back to some sort of a structured format so the students can get back on track? I'm absolutely concerned. I'm concerned for a number number of reasons. Um, I'm concerned that um, children uh, that are vulnerable children are not going to get the support that they need. Um, we already have an inequitable education system that has been 
um, further um, magnified by, by the virus. And I think that this is an opportunity uh, to reset and to rethink. Um, let's not go back to status quo, because we know that there is inherent flaws in our education system. Uh, so that's one thing that, that I'm, I'm concerned about, that we need to, this is an opportunity for us, and we need to not have a missed opportunity. Um, and I am concerned that uh, policymakers do not have at the table those that, um, you know, research uh, this, these topics, the, those that work with young children. Uh, early childhood educators and teachers are not at the table. They are the ones that have been working, that are skilled and trained to deliver uh, curricula to support the learning and well-being of children while maintaining a hygienic and safe environment. This is what they do. This is what they're trained for. They need to be at the table because we are going to have adjustments in our pedagogical approaches as we open schools up because of social distancing or physical distancing. And so we have to make sure that the changes that we are making to keep our children healthy from the virus isn't um, inadvertently uh, resulting in negative outcomes for young children. So, uh, you know, we see these policies being made in the absence of those that work with children, and that's very concerning uh, Concerning to me. Um, and, and really, we have to, to start to much more move forward on implementing a human rights-based strategy when we talk about um, our education system and really start making um, addressing the systemic racism that that exists uh, because we know that gaps are going to grow and equity gaps are going to grow and they are going to um, affect vulnerable families, marginalized communities, indigenous communities, and we already have a problem within our education system on, on how uh, equal it is for, uh, for, for these vulnerable families and that will be even more pronounced as we come back. So these are some very concerning issues uh, for me as we reopen. Yeah, and you point uh, out some some very uh, good things there that uh, we are uh, that do need attention. Um, remote learning, uh, of course, uh, is is one of those uh, situations where many indigenous communities are are placed in remote uh, remote areas, uh, as well as other uh, as other other people and and. I guess um, you you mentioned a couple of other things there, like uh, policymakers, and as we look to September once again, are you are you seeing or hearing anything though that is giving you some hope about uh, about the changes that you just mentioned and not going back to status quo? Um, you know, I guess that's part of this whole thing. We were thrown into it. We're struggling, but like you said, we do need to make changes, and we—that's not the first time we've heard this. Everybody's talking about. I get. I think in in many ways, not going back to status quo or going back to the way things used to be. So, are you are you at least seeing something or hearing things about? Uh, um. Not related to early learning, but I was okay. very uh, pleased with Ontario's news yesterday that they uh, are uh, eliminating streaming mm. in grade nine. Right. I think that is um, uh, that demonstrates an attention uh, to the inequities of, of education. And I hope that that will bring to light um, uh, the way our education system is formulated and the inequities that exist because of that and, and how we can move away from that. So that was for me, um, good news that came out of the, um, 
came out of Ontario yesterday, and I and I hope that this sheds light on on these inherent inequities. Mm. So I think um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, not going back to status quo. I, I think we need to really um, you know lever this um, virus as an opportunity to reset and to rethink because this is this will be a missed opportunity if we just go back to the way things were. We can really now um, have real dialogues and, and for, for the you know first time, there's a lot of attention on education because of the lockdown. So we, we have policymakers' attention right now and this is, this is the time to, uh, to bring these issues to light. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I guess that's the one thing that the the virus has done. It has focused certain areas and certain uh, uh, things that that we weren't necessarily focused on. We were too busy just living our own lives and, and not thinking about them. Now they've been thrown at us and we have to address them. And this is one of those things that you're, you're referring to. And it's, I guess, in some ways, hopefully, like you say, there is this opportunity we have. We should take advantage of that. And, and hopefully that... that, that there are the people out there are are doing that and are looking uh, to that. You mentioned a second wave, of course, as well. That, of course, is a big concern. If we have a second wave, and there are they they are talking about that possibility. Um, what do you think that the 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 potential damage might be for for that if we are are thrown back into a, a second lockdown? Well, I think we're we are we're in a different place right now. I think um, when this first happened, we were very very unprepared. Mm. Um, I think that we are a little bit more prepared uh, if a second wave comes. I think that there are certain things that we absolutely need to to do. Um, we need to reprioritize learning outcomes. Uh, we need to uh, really look at learning priorities. What uh, what should be the focus for young children, and and in Research tells us that social emotional well-being of children and families is crucial. Uh, it's crucial for lifelong learning, and it is really the foundation of learning. Uh, so we need to uh, reprioritize learning. Uh, we also have to remember that schools are the center of, of communities, and they're really hubs for social services. Mm. For many privileged families, school is a place where you send your child to get an education. For other families, it is where they get meals and they get indispensable services. And so these services have to be maintained and we have to be flexible with how we deliver them. Mm. Um, we have to absolutely put a lot of focus and funding towards supporting the most vulnerable. So children with special needs, those from low economic families, those that are living at risk, those that are in, in state care and shelters. Um, and so we, we have to be ready for potential changes in, in pedagogical approaches and policies uh, as a result as well. Um, and professional learning, I, I can't stress this enough. Uh, this is a time where educators, um, um, boards and authorities have an opportunity to provide professional learning of their educators to support children um, during lockdown, online uh, or otherwise, and transition transitioning back because they are going to uh, educators are going to need that support. We can't expect them to do the world, but not but not provide them with the support that they need to do that. 
Uh, and we have to absolutely have a holistic approach to education now more than ever. Um, we need to have everyone at the table. We need to have educators, uh, members of the indigenous community, black community, marginalized communities. We have to have researchers uh, and those that research uh, young children all at the table making these important partnered decisions. Um, and, and money, we need investment. We need uh, investment in early learning because we know that early learning is uh, one of the um, greatest supporters of closing inequities. And so uh, we need to really, uh, as a country, although early learning is under provincial and territorial jurisdiction, as a country, uh, there has to be federal involvement in the investment of early learning to to start to help narrow some of these inequities that we're, we'll, we'll see, if, especially if a second wave hits. I guess the other thing that uh, this is is also doing is that uh, for for advances in, with early childhood um, and and those with maybe special needs, uh, if they're not getting those, they they could be falling behind in terms of so there's going to be a catch up or or trying to get back to where they were almost yes. at some point so so that that is again uh, inhibiting uh, that uh, that progress that that people were were making in, in some of these areas you know the other thing that comes to mind Emis, is is that I, I think of when september resumes and if there is uh, the opportunity for kids to get back into the classroom uh, there's going to be a real uh, with kids being have, have went off for like three, six, f- five, six months uh, away from the classroom. Uh, I, you know, I get a sense that for the young kids, there's going to be, and for the the teachers in those classrooms, there's going to be a real learning curve there to just get the kids back focused again to be able to you know sit down and 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 focus. Absolutely. And, and I think this is where it's very important for the professional learning piece. We have we, we have a lot of research on um, uh, catching up learning through the research on refugees, children that have gone through war torn countries mm. and and have resettled. We have a lot of research to support how do we um, support young children as they have large learning gaps or school gaps. So the, the, the evidence and the research is there. Educators, again, have to be have to uh, undergo professional learning. We can't, we can't expect the world from them, but not prepare them. And I, that I can't stress enough. We need to support them in what we, what we as a as a society need them to do. Um, and and again, if we focus first on social emotional development and then on other aspects of of more scholastic learning, uh, that that will give the foundation to children as they transition back. So definitely there's going to be adjustments to how pedagogical approaches and how we approach learning as we transition back. And, um, if, you know, it's going to be difficult for children. It'll be difficult for educators and families. And so we have to be prepared. The evidence it exists. The evidence is there. We need to now implement it. Right. I mean, it's, it's been a pleasure having you on the show and, and speaking with you. And, and I would really like to uh, uh, offer you the opportunity, if you're so inclined, that we touch base uh, later on in the year, maybe closer either to September or after September to see how things are going and get your perspective once again. Absolutely. I'd be happy to do that. That would be fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. You bet.
Emis Akbari is a professor of early childhood, school of early childhood at George Brown College, and associate professor of applied psychology and human development at the University of Toronto. And Emis's uh, current research uh, is examines determinants of children's early social, emotional, and cognitive development and the buffering of effects of early childhood education in Canada and abroad. And she evaluates current and changes in public policy at all levels of government. She is the co-author of the early Childhood Education Report. That report is released every three years and provides a snapshot of provincial and territorial preschool services and performance on quality criteria, including access to child care programs and investments in early education. And it also compares Canada to other developed economies. It's been a pleasure having her on the show, and it's a pleasure having you listen to the program. And we will be back with more uh, tomorrow, right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.